This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I am your host, Michael Ware. We're back for another episode oriented towards uh, the general election. We have a presumptive nominee in Joe Biden, who is even more presumptive after the events of this week, we can we can presume even more that he'll be the nominee following a string of endorsements that he received on uh, Monday. It was Senator Bernie Sanders. On Tuesday, it was President Barack Obama. And on Wednesday, Senator Elizabeth Warren endorsed uh, the former vice president. He's received other endorsements uh, throughout the week from Democratic elected officials and from Cardi B. And so that's been a theme of the week. I want to, I guess, before we get to faith, the the other significant update this this week has been uh, some state polling has come out that looks pretty good for the vice president. Not just some positive polling in the Rust Belt, uh, but also in Arizona. Uh, And uh, folks have been pointing out that if the vice president is able to win Arizona, then it allows him to lose Wisconsin uh, and still still win the 270 electoral votes uh, he would he would need to become president. But there's been a lot of faith activity over the last few weeks, and this is the Faith 2020 podcast, and so want to talk about it. Before we get into it, I just want to preview. We have. Uh, a wonderful guest uh, for this episode. Actually, this guest was recommended on Twitter and saw the recommendation and uh, moved right away uh, to to, to uh, book this man. I, I thought it was a wonderful idea. We have Professor Joel Goldstein with us, who's one of the preeminent scholars on the vice presidency. And I thought, what a great idea uh, to get some historical perspective on the vice presidency, uh, how uh, presidential nominees have picked their vice president. Of course, the vice president hasn't always been selected by the nominee uh, in such a direct way in uh, in American history, but in sort of the modern era, what kinds of criteria uh, have guided that decision? Uh, how has the process been refined? Um, to what extent is politics considered, electoral politics, and to what extent uh, is it a pure sort of governing decision? We're going to talk with Professor Goldstein about all that and much more, and I'll tell you more about him before the interview. All right, let's talk about faith. Let, let, let's start on the side of the Trump campaign, which has been active. Uh, AP, uh, Associated Press, reported last week about uh, uh, Catholics for Trump, which will be a significant effort. It targeted not just towards white Catholics, but uh, Hispanic Catholics and other Catholics as well, which is really significant. 
Uh, the AP article written by Elena Score pointed out that they plan to focus, of course, on uh, abortion and sanctity of life and Supreme Court nominations. Uh, they also made the argument that Trump's response to uh, the coronavirus is an, is an example of the Catholic principle of subsidiarity. So the Trump campaign has identified uh, Catholics as a key constituency, and they are acting, as we've talked about on this show, uh, as I continue to lay out, faith outreach is not that different from outreach to other constituencies. If you decide a constituency is important and needs to be uh, spoken to uh, and engaged directly, that, that will influence rhetoric. It will influence uh, infrastructure of your campaign and staffing, uh, and it will influence policy. And so ju just right there, uh, Catholics for Trump material communicated out, press effort to get, get the word out there, uh, rhetoric that is specifically uh, oriented toward uh, that community, uh, and uh, the infrastructure of the campaign, that, that they actually have a a real effort. They're not just hoping Catholics know uh, that uh, President Trump wants their vote. They're saying it. Uh, another example of this is the Washington Post reported just this week uh, that the Trump campaign is uh, dedicating resources to reaching out uh, to uh, black and Hispanic evangelicals. And, you know, Again, this is one of those areas where if you've been listening to uh, this podcast, uh, you won't be surprised by that. I get the sense that uh, quite a few uh, Democratic staffers and folks in decision-making positions uh, in the party uh, hand wave away uh, the prospect of President Trump uh, and the Trump campaign being effective uh, with this effort. And they, they, they do so at great risk, explicitly in the report, uh, someone, uh, uh, Bishop Harry Jackson, said right in the story, and Bishop Harry Jackson, I've known him for a decade and a half. He attended, he spoke at the first bipartisan event I hosted as a freshman. Uh, uh, it was the uh, a college Democrat, George Washington University college Democrats and college Republican co-sponsored event. And I had everyone, I had a panel that included everyone from Herb Silverman of, I think he was uh, Americans United for Separation of Church and State or the Secular Coalitions or something like that, to Bishop Harry Jackson. Uh, I think Rob Schenck <laughs> was on the panel. Uh Arthur Davis came by and gave remarks, the former congressman, Democratic congressman from Alabama. Uh, Bishop Harry Jackson was there. So I've, I've known him since I was I was a, a kid. And uh, he's been doing this for a long time. And he, he said exact, exactly what his plan has been is what the Trump campaign is looking at, which is if we could pull away 5 to 7% of African-American voters – it's going to be a major hurdle uh, to uh, to uh, the, the Democrats. And it's going to be a major boon for Trump. Now, that, that won't just – that happening uh, with African-American voters. Hispanic voters is another, another thing. African-American voters, for that to happen, it takes not just Republican 
outreach. It takes democratic mal- malpractice. But what democratic malpractice looks like is reaching out to African-Americans and uh, thinking that you're appealing to African-Americans uh, because D.C. advocacy groups like what you're saying. Well, you are disconnected from the actual issues, priorities, perspective of African-American voters. We saw this in the Democratic primary. One of the reasons why Joe Biden is the nominee today is because he understood that. The real test will be, can the Biden campaign hold on to that, even as they bring on staff to other campaigns and all kinds of advisors and consultants who didn't want Joe Biden to be the nominee in the first place now are telling the Biden campaign what's best for Joe Biden. And that that's going to be a, a real test. On the Hispanic side, look, uh, if Trump makes a concerted effort here, which, you know, let, let's be honest, Trump doing anything in a concerted way, concerted way is a is a long shot. But but if the campaign is uh, is methodical and disciplined, we could see Trump pick up among nationally among Hispanic voters overall, and particularly among Hispanic evangelicals and Catholics. A hundred percent. Just watch what happens as as this campaign and associated efforts pour in tens of millions of dollars into digital advertising that communicates. A perspective that seems so uh, inconsistent with democratic caricatures or democratic sort of narratives about President Trump. And then when they point out things like, you know, it doesn't seem like figures in the Democratic Party have great respect for your church, for the values you raise your kids with. Now, Joe Biden is insulated against that to a certain degree. It's one of the reasons why I've been optimistic about him being the nominee, which is that he is not someone who historically has approached uh, voters generally with antagonism. And remember, this was the major critique of him during the Democratic primary. How dare he uh, talk about Republicans he'll work with? And how dare he not uh, not condemn every uh, person who disagrees with him? And how dare he express at some point in his career some level of moral nuance or hesitancy regarding his party's position on on abortion and on life. And so that that's another piece of this. You're, you're going to have, and you're already seeing it. I'm not going to talk about Al Mohler's endorsement of Trump here. I, I wrote about it. Uh, I, I tweeted about it. So you could go on Twitter. That's free and that's available. I, I wrote an exclusive analysis piece for my subscribers on Substack. And if you want to check that out, would love to have you as a part of that community at reclaiminghope.substack.com. But Moeller just spends his, and others like him, you know, they spent this whole, this whole primary just revving up their people about, look at the Democratic Party. They got, you know, Beto O'Rourke who wants to defund churches and Bernie Sanders, who's a socialist, and these are the people leading the Democratic Party. How could you dare, you know, consider voting for them? Look what they're doing to Joe Biden. You know, there were there were even you know when, when Joe Biden wasn't uh, was wasn't doing too well, they 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 were saying like, look what they 
look, look what they're doing to poor Joe Biden, the, the only Democrat I could vote for. <laughs> of course, now that Joe Biden's the nominee, it's Joe Biden is the is the paragon of the Democratic Party. He's he's the example of how far left they've gone. No, I mean, look. I don't want to talk about this too much because we, we, we at this point we need to get through the the convention. <laughs> but one way to tell the story of this primary is out of you know a dozen significant candidates, the Democratic Party selected the candidate with the most conservative record on abortion, with a record of striking a balance on religious freedom issues. With certainly a record of not being the antagonistic, the the antagonistic culture warrior, whatever you know, caricature folks have of the Democratic Party on on the right, whatever they use to to scare folks. And to be clear, there is some of that in the Democratic Party. My my point is is that that side didn't win, and so. I know that's upsetting to that side, <laughs> but what's funny is what happens in our politics is you get a conspiracy of the far left and the far right acting like they won even when they didn't win. The fact is, Biden, up to this point, won the primary without taking the policy stances that Elizabeth Warren had on abortion or that uh, Gillibrand had on abortion or Kamala Harris had on abortion or that Julian Castro had on abortion and he, he won. He's not, he is the standard bearer. And so, you know, the far left has to deal with that. But the far, the far right has to deal with that, too. All right. Let, let's <laughs> wasn't planning on talking about uh, some of that. I mean, just to put a just to put a bow on it. You know, the theme of that section of this episode was the Trump campaign is moving and they've had a, a, a couple of bad weeks of polling. Like, don't get it twisted. These these folks may be, uh, Donald Trump may be uh, awful at governing. He has a campaign that's effective at reaching people. They're going to go at every angle that they see as an opportunity. And one of those angles is uh, faith. And that's not just conservative white folks. Uh, they're going to be making a case across the board. And Democrats better be ready to have a response to that. Until the demographics of this country change wildly, you're not going to have a winning campaign unless you have a a response, unless you're unless you're willing to make a case on that playing field. Thankfully, in my view, and uh, from the perspective I think of people who don't want to see Trump get reelected, is uh the Biden campaign has done more on faith in the last three weeks then, and it's only a slight exaggeration when I say this, I, uh, and, you know, it is an exaggeration. So please don't send me every link of everything Hillary Clinton did, you know, uh, starting in, you know, January of 2015. Uh, it's only a slight exaggeration to say that Joe Biden's campaign has done more on faith in the last three weeks than Hillary Clinton did in all of 2016. So uh, they put out a new a newsletter and the first edition of that newsletter is just loaded with faith language. They put out a video and a statement around Easter that very appropriately I think, lifted up the positive role that faith is playing in this crisis at a time I'd add when a lot of the media narrative is about churches that aren't closing down and not acknowledging 
the positive role that faith is playing in this crisis. Joe Biden put out a statement that, that suggests that is, is the beginning of a suggestion that he has a vision for a positive role that faith can play uh, in American life and as, uh, as, as part of a country where, where he is president. So he did that. Reverend William Barber, who has been a guest on this show, was one of the first guests on Joe Biden's uh, podcast. They had a 45-minute conversation about faith. Now, their conversation about Reverend Barber's view on uh, some of these issues isn't going to be shared by every everybody. That's, that's fine. It's, faith outreach isn't about only reaching out to one specific slice. It, it's, it's, a, it's about faith outreach. Uh, it, it is... Again, you know, we said this around the cattle call event that Barber had, where I think he had nine or 10 Democratic candidates show up. It's difficult to overstate how new it is to have a Democratic nominee engage in a 45 minute conversation about uh, poverty. That's to Biden's credit. It, it, it's also uh, a sign that Reverend Barber has, you know, for all the people who talk about building power and sort of we got a movement, dun, dun, dun. You know, Barber is pressing Biden on his own podcast <laughs> uh, on Barber's issues. And just like other constituencies do, the difference has been in the past, candidates have felt like they need to endure it with those constituencies and not endure it with faith community. And so it's it's significant. And so we, we've just seen a lot from the Biden campaign. And then, of course... President Obama endorsed, and I, I can talk about it a bit because it was it was made public. But uh, I, I had the privilege of uh, joining uh, the president on a President Obama on a, a prayer call. He he, a pretty private, intimate prayer call he held on during Holy Week. And when I say it was made public, there were excerpts of the call that were made public by the Obama Foundation of. The portion of the call where the president was talking about faith communities' response to coronavirus, and it was it was uh, first of all, it was good to <laughs> good to hear his voice. Uh, second, second of all, I listened to the call, and you know you're torn between torn between saying, you know, th- this is a once in a lifetime sort of leader that you're just never going to see again. And hearing them talk and just go, just just thinking, see, it's not that hard, you know. Like I'm not crazy. <laughs> like what what he is saying right now is is what I've been <laughs> suggesting y'all say, you know, since he left office, <laughs> and, and and it can be done. I'm hearing it right now. He is he is operating in the world as it is today, saying these things. Highest approval ratings in the Democratic Party of, of anybody. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and he's able to do it. And, and, you know, I won't go into the details, but he lays out a positive vision, inviting you into, in, in, inviting, uh, in this context, people of faith, faith leaders, Christian leaders, acknowledging the good they're already doing, inviting them to, to do some more good together. Like, like it's it's not it's not that difficult, and so when you're on that when you're hearing that message, you're not hearing all these caveats of, you know, I know it's hard sometimes for you know faith leaders to you know listen to science, but you know it's what what we got to do instead. Instead, the president says exactly what's right on the call, which is 
you know, he says, we know, and notice the pronoun, we, we know that there's no conflict between faith and science. So like, yeah, there's some other nonsense going on, but, but, but these conflicts that we see aren't integral to faith. We don't need to give in to these false dichotomies into these divisions. And the president brought some of that language to his endorsement of the vice president uh, included was uh, a quote that uh, quote through all his trials referring to vice president Biden. He's never once forgotten the values or the moral fiber that his parents passed on to him and that made him who he is. That's what steals his faith in God in America and in all of us. And look, like that's just rhetoric. Like, like people shouldn't, people shouldn't get like too euphoric over over this because like it makes us feel good. Like, oh, he's talking about faith in God. The 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 practical value of something like this, the practical value of the vice president putting out an Easter statement, is it sends a message that Christians who want to talk about Easter, like like Christians who will talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christians who believe that their faith is public and not just private, something that should that they should be able to talk about, shows that like there's a there's a place for them, and that has policy implications, that has cultural expect uh, uh, cultural implications, and those are substantive matters. Like it it matters. We 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 could have had a a uh, candidate, and we have uh, we have certain constituencies and people in. On the Democratic side, who are like, why is the president, why would a Democratic nominee even issue a Easter statement? That's, you know, conflation of, uh, that breaks the separation of church and state. So, like, those arguments are happening. Joe Biden issuing a statement on Easter is a reflection of, like, where he falls, where his campaign falls on that side of the debate. So, so it's, it's important. We don't listen to this rhetoric because it makes us feel all warm inside. We, we listen to it because it's an indication of how they'll govern and their vision of, of society. My, my last comment here, which, you know, goes to that, you know, so the, the vice president has a statement. He goes on Nicole Wallace's show on MSNBC and he's talking about this. I, I think they aired the video. Nicole Wallace, interestingly, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but she asked a question that was something along the lines of, you know, what do you say about those who can't find faith in this moment, uh, in the coronavirus, that, that you know, see the bad news and, and are, 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 are worried and can't find faith? Interestingly, and it shows a certain kind of like sensitivity that's and guardedness that has uh, crept in uh, just generally into society. Uh, I didn't hear her asking that question as, you know, I'm not a person of faith, so what do you have to say to me? But that's kind of how Biden took it. And Biden gave an answer that was like, you know, basically saying, you know, for, for me, faith is important, but for you, it might be, you know, the smile on your kid's face or, you know, uh, we could... I. Be happy to talk with the former vice president, vice president about that. That is not really the point. The point is there was this interesting thing that happened where some of his supporters shared Biden's response as if to say, this is why I support Joe. Like it's see like faith really isn't about religion so much. Faith is not so integral after all. So, so they, they go, they put out the statement, they do the video, 
vice presidents on, on MSNBC talking about how, how he'd say three Hail Marys with his kids every night and pray on his, his rosary and how his faith, his Catholic faith got him through. And, you know, what some folks on the campaign shared was, you know, him responding to what he thought was the question in, in a, in a way full of empathy, you know, whatever we could, we could talk about the, the particularities of what he said, uh, whether, you know, from a theological perspective, you parse it out like he did. The point is this, you know, someone said this, you know, it's Easter week. So, like, why are you using official channels? Like, like if if you can't let off like a clean, a clean hit of a vice president just talking about his faith, like, you know, two days before Easter, you know. When is that? When it, when is that going to be okay? And so it, it was. It was just an interesting moment. Uh, it shows like a discomfort among some with not having a caveat around speaking from your perspective. You know, let's say we were talking about a, a, a candidate speaking about how their background being raised in a low income family. Uh, shaped who they are or influences their thought. Or I, I can't even talk about how their their racial background has affected their life and and how they think about things. There there would be no demand on that candidate to to say, well what I learned, you know, growing up low income was, you know, hard work, you know, the the, the importance of community. Uh, but, you know, I just want to be clear, not suggesting that my upbringing was any better than anybody else's. And, you know, my upbringing isn't the only way that you could raise someone. And I, it, like, no, it's, it's your, it, it's what's important to you. You don't, you don't need to universalize everything. So yeah, I, I, I guess the, the main message I have here is don't step on your own messaging. It's, it's Holy Week. You know, vice president said what he said. <laughs> And you don't you don't have apologize for it. He's a very like let it speak for itself. You don't you don't need to uh, do all kinds of explaining for him on something like this. All right, so just to recap what we've discussed, and I, f- I feel like I haven't talked to you in a while and really given a overview of where things are. So I felt like this episode would be a a good one to do it just as an overview both campaigns are turning towards a general i mean even to the extent that you know biden's week has largely been defined by these endorsements but the the democratic endorsements are about pivoting to the general <laughs> and so uh that's happening on faith too uh just over the last couple of weeks two major stories one in the ap one in washington post about trump's outreach to catholics and evangelicals of color. The Biden campaign has been uh, a pretty faith forward. Part of that is just due to the fact that, uh, uh, that, you know, we just had Easter, Passover, the Biden campaign did, did some good work around Passover as well. Um, but it also indicates a different approach, a, a, cor- a correction from 2016, uh, certainly a long way to go, a lot of work to do, but um, I, f- I feel like the Biden campaign is on a good trajectory. I'm, I'm interested to see 
you know, they're staffing up now, uh, that they're, that they're pivoting towards the general. They could use some additional faith staff. It's, it's a big country. There's a lot of folks to reach out to, a lot of different angles to cover. And now that they're moving towards a general uh, staffing up here is appropriate and I think necessary. So over the next four to eight weeks, I'll be interested to see some additional faith hires. All right, let's let's move to our interview this week, and uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Professor uh, Joel Goldstein. Uh, Joel is a highly respected scholar of the Vice Presidency, the Presidency in Constitutional Law, has written widely in all three areas. He is uh, sought by national and international media outlets to provide commentary and insight during the presidential campaigns, as we're doing here at the Faith 2020 podcast. He is probably best known for his work on the vice presidency, which is why we have him on. He wrote his first book, which was based on his doctoral dissertation on the modern American vice presidency, the transformation of a political institution. He wrote a second book on the subject, uh, the, the White House vice presidency, the path to significance, Mondale to Biden. And he's written numerous scholarly articles and commentary pieces on the vice presidency. Uh, He is, as he'll tell us, he's currently working on a book on the national political career of Senator Edmund Muskie, which I'm really interested in and uh, glad that we're able to talk about that towards the end of uh, towards the end of the interview. Professor Goldstein is just immensely respected. A great honor to have him on. Here's my conversation with Professor Joel Goldstein. Well, Professor Goldstein, welcome to the Faith 2020 podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks very much for having me. I'm looking forward to to speaking with you. Yeah, you know, as we uh, obviously, you know, up until the last month or so, this podcast has been focused on uh, the primary process, but we now feel, especially after the events of this week, we feel uh, confident pivoting to the general election. And I just thought, uh, who better to have on to help us understand the vice presidency and particularly the sele- the selection process for uh, the vice president in sort of the, the modern era uh, and and what might be going through uh, the former vice president uh, uh, J- Joe Biden's mind as he as he thinks about uh, who his running mate should be uh, who better to, to walk us through some of that than, than than you so again thank you so much for joining joining us uh, we're all where I'd like to start is just um, tell us a, a, a bit, sort of as, as an overview about sort of how you've seen in uh, in, in the modern era, sort of um, particularly post uh, Kennedy and post Kennedy, um, how the Kennedy presidency, how have you seen the vice presidency uh, evolve over the last, uh, say, say sixty? Uh, 70 years. What has the vice presidency become in America? Sure. You know, it's a fascinating uh, story of how an institution can evolve. Um, I mean, historically, the vice presidency was a pretty insignificant uh, office. John Adams, the first uh, vice president, said that my country has uh, created for me the most insignificant office that ever the imagination of man uh, conceived, I can do neither good nor evil. Um, and really, for most of our history, uh, the vice presidency was pretty much limited to presiding over the Senate 
And uh, on rare occasions, when a president would die, the vice president would become uh, president. But it, it was really very much of, of, of sort of a afterthought of a laughing stock that was uh, uh, disparaged by uh, not only by uh, by political pundits and comedians, but by vice presidents uh, as well. Uh, <laughs> Thomas Marshall, who was Woodrow Wilson's vice presidency uh, vice president after he retired. Um, said, I don't want to uh, work anymore, but I wouldn't mind being vice president again. <laughs> the office really began to change in the, in, uh, I, I think in the mid uh, 20th century. Um, really, the uh, America's role in the world, American government had changed really due to the New Deal and World War uh, II, the, the advent of the Cold War, the, the nuclear age. And just the change in technology, and that had sort of made the presidency more important, made uh, America's role in the world more important. Um, and so, what really happened, beginning with the Eisenhower presidency and the vice presidency of Richard Nixon, was the vice presidency really was pulled um, away from Capitol Hill into the executive branch, and the vice president really. Be- uh, gradually became sort of um, somebody who took on assignments for the president, um, political and uh, diplomatic assignments for the president, and, and spent less and less time um, presiding over the Senate. And for about a quarter century, beginning with the vice presidency of Richard Nixon, that model sort of followed. But then the the office took another sort of major shift with the vice presidency of Walter Mondale in 1970. Seven, um, President Carter really brought Mondale into the president's inner circle for the first time. Uh, Mondale sort of envisioned a new kind of vice presidency. Carter blessed it, and, uh, and and that really is what developed during their term. And then it's really been followed, um, uh, you know, with some variation uh, ever since by uh, Democratic and Republican administrations both. Yeah, you know, as I was preparing for for this uh, for our conversation, you, know, I, I was thinking, you know, I think it's easy to uh, and almost assume sort of a kind of cynicism when it comes to the choice of a running mate. That oh, it's it's a purely sort of political thing. They're just looking to balance the ticket or this and that. But then I thought about the the recent vice presidents that we've had. Uh, Nixon, uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, Dick Cheney, uh, Joe Biden. These were not, uh, well, in many of the cases, these were not the most sort of politically attractive figures that that the that the uh, that the nominee could have selected. And then second, I, I uh, also throw in LBJ there. Um, but but second, these were real heavyweights. These were people who could who knew how government worked, who could get things done. Do you also push back on sort of, uh, do you see in history sort of evidence to push back against the idea that that nominees are, are looking at this th- solely through a, a political lens? And and how, how do you, I guess the more specific question is, how do you think they've balanced the two, um, the, the electoral politics of it and the fact that they're going to have to govern with this person uh, for at least four years? Sure. No, I, I think that's a, a great question. It's a, it's a great point because um, 
um, the people who've been vice president, uh, really, I mean, beginning with uh, Nixon, and you could actually go back a little bit further. I mean, Harry Truman's vice president, Alvin Barkley, was a, a major figure in the in the Senate and so forth. But, mm. but starting with, with you know with with, with Richard Nixon. Um, with very few exceptions. I mean, uh, you, you know, Spiro Agnew, I think, would be one. The people who've been vice president have really been um, at the top of their political generation. I mean, whether you are a D or an R, whether you agree with them or not, um, you, you know, folks like Lyndon Johnson, Hubert Humphrey, Gerald Ford, Nelson Rockefeller, Mondale Bush, so forth. I mean, were really um, political heavyweights who were um, you know, the blue chip uh, players of, of, of their party during their their time. Um, your point about about vice presidential selection, I, I think you're quite right. I mean, there is something cynical about suggesting, as, as often is, that, that presidential candidates are simply going to be looking for somebody from um, a big state to bring in a big block of electoral votes. But, you know, in fact, that's not how it operates. Um, many of the vice presidential candidates um, have been folks from small states. Dick Cheney was from Wyoming with three electoral votes. Joe Biden from Delaware with three electoral votes. Uh, Sarah Palin from Alaska. Um, Joe Lieberman from Connecticut. Um, so, um, and, and very rarely do presidential candidates choose somebody from a big competitive um, state. Um um, Gerald Ford chose uh, Bob Dole from Kansas. Well, if Ford wasn't going to win Kansas, um, he wasn't going <laughs> to have a chance of being reelected to begin with. And and yeah. and, and Dan Quayle from Indiana, um, and uh, you know, again, a state that you know that the Republicans had to win to have a chance. So um, it, there are very few instances when in, where the state um, makes a big difference. I think that one of the insights that President Jimmy Carter had when he ran for um, president in 1976 was that the idea that that there was a relationship between making a good governments a good governance decision and a good political decision. Um, I think you know Walter Mondale certainly had certain sort of ticket balancing appeal to Carter. Uh, Carter was a Southerner. Mondale was a Northerner. Carter was more moderate. Mondale identified with the liberal uh, part of the Democratic Party. Um, Car- Carter, uh, you know, his experience had been a one-term governor of Georgia. Mondale had had 12 years of experience in Washington. Um, Carter was sort of an outsider. Mondale was somebody who was well-liked by the traditional Democratic groups. But Carter also saw Mondale as somebody who really was a very substantial person and who could help him govern. And I think he realized that if you chose somebody who would was presidential, that they were more likely to do well on the campaign trail and that was more likely to reflect well on, on the person who made the selection than if you chose somebody who might have the right sort of check off the right boxes, but might be less able. And so I think many presidents have really thought long and hard and have, have been motivated in part, uh, many presidential candidates, by choosing somebody who really is presidential, um, not simply because it's good governance, although it is, but they've also seen that choosing somebody who is, is going to be a plausible president um, is also smart politically. 
Yeah, that that's helpful. Looking at 2020 and and specifically at former Vice President Biden, what do you think he's especially paying attention to as he uh, considers this decision? What do you think history would advise him to pay attention to? In addition to what you just uh, what you just laid out, um, and then. You know, also to sort of add to the pot, and you could just sort of reflect uh, on on Biden's choice, however uh, you wish. But my understanding is, is it is a bit of a, uh, his uh, novelty in uh, presidential politics for Biden to have laid so many of his cards out on the table at this point. He is uh, committed in a presidential debate to uh, selecting. Uh, selecting a, a woman as his vice president, uh, as his running, uh, as his running mate, he's been uh, quite specific about some of the people he's considering. How do you think that plays into it? Did, were you surprised uh, for Biden to make such an explicit promise um, uh, at the stage of the campaign that he did? Well, I, I, I was surprised. I mean, I had I had written. Um, some months before he had um, made that statement that I thought that, uh, you know, it's at some point we'll get to a, a, a point where um, there'll be two women on the on a Democratic ticket. And, and I think there'll be um, two white men on a Democratic ticket again. Um, and of course, in the past, I mean, with the exception of a very few tickets, um, our, our presidential tickets have been two white men. Um, okay. But that I, I I thought that we're now at a stage where it was likely that there would be some sort of demographic balance on the Democratic ticket. So that I thought that if a woman were the presidential nominee, that she would choose um, that she would choose a running mate who was a man, and, and that I thought that if if the nominee was a person of color, that they would choose somebody who was uh, who was who was uh, Caucasian. Um, and so I thought that there would be some sort of demographic balance. I thought that a white male um, candidate would choose either a woman or a minority. I was surprised when the vice president indicated up front that he, his running mate was going to be a woman. Um, right. It it, um, it narrows his pool. I mean, there's still it's a very different uh, terrain than when Walter Mondale chose in 1984. There, there, um, you know, there's I think 17. Uh, Women, Democratic women in the United States Senate. There, there are uh, six women who are Democratic governors. Many women who served in in um, President Obama's cabinet and so forth. So there's a lot of of, of able people. A number of women ran for president at this time. Um, there's a lot of people um, in the pool to choose from. Um, I think that if if that what history would suggest and what what I my view is that. You have to start by choosing somebody who's presidential. I think it's a mistake to choose somebody who reachable voters, um, voters who who might be persuaded to vote for you, don't view as somebody who they could see plausibly sitting in the Oval Office. So I think you have to start with asking, is this somebody who really is of the caliber to serve as president of the United States? I think the other, another sort of threshold factor is that the candidates have to go through a very intensive vetting screen that really asks about everything in their life, their 
families' lives, their spouse, their children, and to sort of smoke out whether there's anything that would, any baggage that they might have that is just too heavy to to risk bearing in a campaign. If you get through past those two hurdles, I think then what you're thinking about is, is this somebody who I can work with? Is this somebody who I'm politically compatible with so that we'll be articulating messages that are compatible? Is this somebody that is a human being that I'm personally compatible with? Um, Is this somebody who is suited to function as a number two? Being a Mm. vice president or vice presidential candidate is really an extraordinary uh, position, and it's a very difficult one. I mean, you imagine a fellow like Biden who, for 36 years, he's a United States senator. He's chairman of two major committees. He's his own boss. Um, And then he spends eight years where his assignment basically is to help somebody else, um, you know, basically pursue his agenda. And, and of course, you were there. And it, so it's a very different, um, it, it's a difficult role. It's a, for a vice presidential candidate, you can't simply think about what do I think about this issue? You oh. have to be thinking about what is the theme, what, what does the presidential candidate think about it? What has he or she said about it? Um, how, how can I say something that's consistent with that? And so it's, it's a challenging role. And the vice presidential candidate's got to be somebody who's willing to perform in that role. And, right. and then, of course, you're thinking about, you know, to be president, you have to get 270 electoral votes. So running up the popular vote isn't going to get you across the, the finish line. You basically have to think, is, is there somebody who can help me in a competitive state, maybe make a little bit of a difference, help me at the margin that might make the difference between carrying one of the states that's likely to be um, competitive. I think those are the major factors. There's some other smaller factors. I mean, you know, there's some states where some of the the people um, who've been mentioned are senators from states that have Republican governors. So if they were elected, it would Mm -hmm. cost the Democrats a seat in the Senate. You know, that may be a a consideration um, that you think about as well. But I think I think these other ones would be the primary ones. Yeah, I guess uh, before we wrap up, I would love to ask you about, you know, the role Vice President Pence has played and the role that you see him playing in the upcoming reelection fight. You know, it, it, it's been interesting to see the role he's been given in combating and, and dealing with the coronavirus. Uh, he was viewed in 2016 as someone who provided a, a sense of familiarity and comfort to, in particular, social conservatives who might otherwise, uh, uh, well, didn't have that comfort uh, necessarily, or at least that sort of cultural familiarity with uh, with Donald Trump back then. How do you think he's done as, as vice president? Uh, how, how closely to the historical model has his vice presidency, you know, followed? And then do, do you think he's a piece of the puzzle for uh, Donald Trump's reelection effort? I, I think all the vice presidents, beginning with Mondale, have sort of followed the what I've called the White House vice presidency. But it's really the model that Carter and Mondale created of the vice president as a general across the board advisor and troubleshooter for the president um, on, you know, on significant matters that need high level um, attention. Um, 
you know, there's been some variation from administration to administration, depending upon the talents of the particular vice president, the needs of the president, um, and 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 you know his administration, um, and the relationship between the two, the vice president's standing at a particular um, time, and the president's decision making style. I mean, if if you're working for a president like Jimmy Carter, who is you know, is takes a deep sort of dive into issues. There's a lot of opportunity to um, engage in sort of policy uh, discussions, and there may be opportunities because Carter wasn't really particularly focused on the politics of, of huh. policy yeah, yeah. to to make real contributions in that area. Right. On the other hand, if you're the vice president for Ronald Reagan, who was you know sort of focused on big picture. Um, you may not have the same opportunity to, you know, to take these, you know, deep dives into policy. But George H.W. Bush, who was a very talented um, diplomat, did a lot of important sort of um, diplomatic work for President Reagan. And and, and so each vice president is a little bit different depending upon the vice president's skills, the president's uh, personality and and decision-making style. I think one of the challenges that Vice President Pence has had is, so I, I think Vice President Pence has basically followed this Mondale model. Yeah. I, I think his vice presidency, of course, is sort of refracted by the fact that, that you know, he's working for a pretty unique president um, in Donald Trump. President Trump has, um, you know. Is, is, that the, is that the historic assessment at this, at the, pretty unique? Is that the, uh, the, the academic uh a term to put around it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think, I think, I mean, I think that's as is um, as neutral a way as I can express it. I think. Um, I mean, but 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 yeah. I mean, I think it's it's um, you know, pre- President Trump uh, doesn't engage in the same sort of policy processes right. that our other presidents have of, of both parties. Um, He, you know, tends to talk to and and to take information from people who other presidents would not have spent time talking about on on the talking to on the phone, whether they're sort of business cronies or are people who have shows on 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 political talk shows or that sort of thing. Um, And, you know, and and he he sets policy sometimes by Twitter. you know, and he's been somebody who's been surrounded by controversy, a lot of um, um, investigations and so forth. For most mm-hmm. vice presidents, they've wanted to be in the room at all the time. Well, yeah. it's pretty difficult to be in the room when policy is made. If policy is made, you know, up in the the White House residence um, during a phone conversation with Sean Hannity or, or, mm-hmm. or, or, or if if policy is made on on a tweet um, that comes at six in the morning or whenever. Um, so Vice President Pence has had some constraints. I think there's also the sense that that this is a president who particularly rewards um, um, subordinates who, um, who who are willing to praise him rather effusively. And th- that's been something that the vice president has done. Um, the coronavirus task force has really been the, the, the most significant assignment um, of an ongoing sort of nature that Vice President Pence has had 
since he was brought in to uh, play an important role in the transition. Um, and so presumably he's running the task force meetings, um, although, you know, the presentation, the results now has turned into sort of a, a daily b- briefing where the president, um, um, you know, comes in and takes over. I think one of the problems that Vice President Pence has is that for a vice president to be signif- really significant, it's got to be clear to other people that the president really values him and that the president and that when the vice president speaks, he's speaking for the president. There have been a number of instances where President Trump, Trump has, after Vice President Pence has taken actions or made statements, has undercut him or has said things that were different. And when that happens, it tends to devalue the vice president's significance um, in the eyes of other people. Um, you know, if, if, if the vice president can't speak for the president, well, then you'd much rather, why speak to the vice president? And so yeah. I think that's been a challenge that he's had uh, on occasion. I, I think that President Trump has indicated that Vice President Pence will be his running mate. I'd be, and as he's even said it would be very disloyal for him not to include Vice President Pence. He's a number of times he's mentioned the fact that Vice President Pence is somebody who has support in the evangelical community. And the, um, and um, so I would think that, that I, I'd be very surprised if Vice President Pence isn't uh, on the ticket with President Trump. Yeah. Well, Joel, I can't thank you enough for providing this insight that's going to really help us over, uh, especially these next few months, but going into the uh, general, uh, would love for, if we were able to talk before we started recording, would love for you to share a bit about your your current uh, book project and what are you working on? Well, the next big project that I'm uh, um, working on, I mean, I do, I'm still doing some work on the vice presidency and issues dealing with presidential succession and inability. But the big project that I'm really uh, excited about and focused on is a political biography of Senator Edmund Muskie um, um, in in his national career. Um, Muskie was a a two-term governor of Maine, uh, who then went to the United States Senate from 1959 until he resigned from the Senate to become uh, Secretary of State in 1980. He was the Democratic vice presidential candidate in 1968. But he really was somebody who came from a tradition and practiced the really the art of bipartisan politics. Um, when he was the governor of Maine, uh, the legislature was controlled overwhelmingly by Republicans, and he got used to working across the aisle, uh, as he had when he'd been in the, in, in the main uh, legislator, legislature as a minority member. When he went to the Senate, he became a, uh, a subcommittee and committee chairperson, but he was somebody who always worked very closely with the Republican ranking member. Um, and oftentimes, although Muskie was really identified as a liberal, he would work very closely with people like Howard Baker or Henry Bellman, um, you, you know, or, um, or, or others who were were much more conservative, and they would work collaboratively to come to come up with legislation, um, including, for instance, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, um, major environmental accomplishments of the 1970-72 period, were overwhelmingly bipartisan um, accomplishments, and 
and this took place at the committee level and um, and, and on the floor of the uh, of the Senate. And it was really due to the, the that sort of approach to politics. In his national campaign in 1968, he really articulated um, beautifully the basic values of American pluralism and the idea that we're a, a, a people that um, that is enriched by the fact that there's a diversity of of, of views and nationalities yeah. and ethnic groups and religious groups and racial groups and that and that that's part of what makes us strong and that's part of who we are um, and we need to work together and we need to trust each other um, and so th- that's really the uh, the next project and I'm I'm really excited about it and I appreciate you asking about it. Well, it's it's timely. I wish we could talk about it more. I, I will say just the one thought that has hit me is, uh, you know, if we, uh, I'm not sure there is a huge stable of political figures that we could call on to to serve on something like the Tower Commission, <laughs> like you know, if, if as you talk about Muskie. Uh, uh, it, it's it seems like uh, we, we could we, we could use people like him, but uh, they don't they don't grow on trees. <laughs> no, that's absolutely right. I mean, people like like Muskie and Howard Baker and they, right. they were the sort of people who could be called on by, by by presidents of the other party. And and they always put nation first and and and, and they may have disagreed with some other people you know, whose politics were different. But 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 they had no question of that that the priority was on what's in the best interest of the of the United States of America, and they were disposed to work with people who they disagreed with, and they thought that that good policy was formed by interacting with people who they disagreed with and and engaging in civil discourse, and so it, they really were treasures. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that work uh, from you. We're, uh, I'm grateful for, uh, for all of your work. And uh, thank you so much for joining uh, the podcast. Oh, not at all. Thanks very much for having me. I enjoyed being with you. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Professor Joel Goldstein and honored to have him on, grateful for really his lifetime of, of work into the subject and his willingness to share that, that insight with us. That's all we have for you uh, this week on the Faith 2020 podcast. I uh, would love to stay in touch on Twitter. I'm at Michael R. Ware over on Substack at reclaiminghope.substack.com. And uh, we'll talk on the next episode of the Faith 2020 podcast. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.